everybody. Welcome to the CPDR podcast. I'm Bill Fulton. I'm here with our contributing editor, Josh Stevens, today. And we're going to talk about uh, the top planning stories of the year, uh, a year like no other, as we said in Josh's story in CPDR. Uh, uh, hello, Josh. Thanks for being here with us. Hi, Bill. Thank you. And happy holidays to everyone. Happy holidays to you, too. Um, so the biggest story of the year was probably the pandemic and how it affected both the outlook for cities and how planning in California is actually done. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about, um, uh, uh, first of all, maybe we can begin by talking about what actually changed about the practice of planning in California this year, because those were the stories that actually got the most hits on our website all year. For sure. So when the pandemic came out and it was already, and it was breaking news um, and something brand new and something uncertain um, as opposed to the, the past nine months that we've kind of gotten used to in certain ways, um, we wrote a few stories about how it would, really focusing on what the pandemic meant for planners, um, even more so than planning, because um, that's, I think, I think a whole other issue. Um, so we wrote about meetings moving online. Um, and I think that was interesting because we've had the capability of having online meetings for a long time, meetings being city council meetings or planning commission meetings or land use committee meetings and so forth. And all of a sudden, all those meetings had to go online. And the question was, is that good? Does it increase citizen participation? Does it change any decisions? Um, so we wrote that article early on, sort of more uh, speculative or looking forward than, than anything else. Um, we wrote about public outreach. You know, the, the traditional planning meaning is you get a room in the community center at 5.30 in the evening and you see who shows up and submits their comment cards and looks at posters and so forth. And of course, that radically changed um, in planning. And the consensus, I think, on that article, maybe not a consensus, but some ideas were that the planning's good, the pandemic is good in that sense. Um, there have been longstanding criticisms about traditional public meetings because they're exclusionary, because they're at the wrong time, because people can't get to them. And if these things move online effectively, and I think effectively is the operative word, um, then we might actually have a more robust public outreach process and end up with better comments and better plans and so forth. That, of course, is also a work in progress. Um, there are many methods of electronic outreach that I think departments are experimenting with. Um, but again, the pandemic kind of kicked that into gear. And the, the, the first planning story we wrote, the one that got the most hits on the website, was very much about sort of the day-to-day -day work for planners. Um, one of the big questions I asked was, um, what does the pandemic mean for sort of the day-to-day -day, like planning counter stuff, people getting their permits? What does it mean for long-range planning? Um, you know, the question behind long-range planning was, well, we have this pandemic. Is that actually going to affect how we want to design and build cities? Um, does that, does this completely throw long-range plans out the window? And the immediate answer was, no, because a lot of long-range plans, be it general plan updates or whatnot, are already underway, they're already funded, they're already staffed. And a lot of these things are about, um, you know, drafting the plans and working on maps and, and so forth. And those are already well underway. Um, and those are going to continue to be underway, um, you know, at least, you know, to the extent that um, 
you know, those planners are assigned and, and, and some and a lot of these plans are funded. So that's not going to change how they'll be implemented in the decades and years to come is another story. Yes, it, it seems like two major things shifted with the pandemic and the practice of planning. I think you're saying one is that um, the nature of public meetings, and the nature of public outreach changed. The other was we saw a lot of permitting processes and go online, go completely online, mm -hmm. um, rather than bringing in enormous rolls of plans. Um, <clears throat> seems to me that the second one is going to stick for sure, um, because that's just so much easier uh, and faster. Um, you wonder how much the first one will stick and how much uh, uh, people will want to go back to old-fashioned old fashioned meetings, or how do you do a hybrid between the two, right? How do you have a meeting in person and people who can't be there uh, uh, participate um, uh, online in some way, either by audio or by video or by both? So, and then the other thing, as you pointed out in the article you wrote about, about the 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 year in planning was that uh, fact-based stories about what was going on were overwhelmed about speculation about the future of cities mm -hmm. and i can't tell you how many times i've read a story the theme of which or even the headline of which is uh, cities are over right right um that we it, i've never seen so much speculation about the future of cities even going all the way back to the 1970s when the future of cities was very much in doubt as in the last six, six months, especially um, as as people fled, particularly New York and, and the Bay Area and to a lesser extent LA uh, and began to populate these boom uh, Zoom towns, Zoom towns, all, particularly in the Intermountain West. Um, what does all this add up to? And, and what is the speculation, is this speculation meaningful or what trends do we, and patterns do we see? That's a great question. Um... I think a very early on, I wrote a blog about this, which kind of gets into our blog section of the top stories. But the blog was basically, even in the first two weeks of the pandemic, we saw these op-eds, you know, in all sorts of publications about the death of cities. And I guess I'm sort of naturally moderate, naturally kind of in the middle. And my response was, we have no idea. You know, this pandemic, <laughs> it's terrible. It's monumental in the moment. Um, but we don't know if it's going to last a month or 10 months. So now we're on, you know, we're looking at, you know, with the vaccine, we're looking at least 12 months or 16 months. Um, but, you know, to imply that it's going to have years and decades of impact, we don't know. It might. Like, who knows? The, the Zoom town phenomenon, the work from home phenomenon, those all may turn to be very real or the vaccine might work. People might finally figure out how to social distance such that we get herd immunity or you know, the virus dies down. And people might be so starved to get back to the great thing about city life that cities resurge. I could flip a coin and either of those scenarios could happen. So I was very cautious about predicting what this all means for cities. Um, and one of, the, one of the things I've noticed is that Talk about confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. The situation, the commentators have have doubled down on their previous approach to cities, and they're all saying that that um, that the pandemic will prove them right. So, for example, uh, I don't think anybody's uh, jumped on the uh, uh, cities are over 
um, bandwagon more than Joel Kotkin, who thinks, seems to think that this proves everything he's been saying for decades about suburbs correct, while at the same time, um, <clears throat> at the same time, we see Richard Florida saying that that uh, Zoom town and they've kind of become a, a tag team in this whole, you know, they, they, <laughs> they debate things together on a regular basis. Uh, but that 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 he seems to also have doubled down on cities and say, in saying we're going to see once the pandemic is gone, we're going to see another roaring 20s of incredible, incredible, incredibly rich social interaction. So so facts have been hard to come by, although it is true that we've seen a flight particularly from San Francisco mm-hmm. and and um, whereas opinions have been easy to come by, but hard to uh, judge as being reliable. So I think it's we, we're with, I'm with you that we don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, I, I think the only thing we can say for sure is that a lot of the trends that were already occurring, the switch to online retail, for example, a gradual move to work toward home, those got, have been accelerated by the pandemic and to some extent will stick. It seems to me the biggest question is to what extent will the work at home phenomenon uh, stick? Right, because that could radically change. My observation would be though, place values are not going away. People who are leaving New York or the Bay Area or even Los Angeles are are, are not going to places to locations that have uh, fewer place amenities. They're going to mm-hmm. places that, you know, with Boise, for example, is booming. Salt Lake is booming. Uh, in the in the Intermountain West, um, high amenity suburbs in New York, or Westchester, North Jersey are booming. Um, so I don't think people are. They may be leaving the city behind, and and this was happening anyway. That, but to, if they can, they're bringing uh, bringing the city with them to to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, the other overwhelming uh, story of the year was the whole the death of George Floyd. The 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 um, the renewal of the discussion about uh, race in society, um, and and we touched on that a little bit this year in our coverage. Um, tell us a little bit about how uh, that has informed California planning over the last, I don't know, six to nine months. Yeah, I mean the obviously the racial tensions and the renewed awareness and interest in social justice and equity, um, you know, have captivated the nation and are so important for planning because so much of American social life takes place within the structure of a city. And obviously, you know, uh, racial patterns in cities and racial relations take place spatially um, and cities are diverse and and there are high poverty, which is often a point of tension. And and we look back to the legacies of of redlining, which, you know, and, and other explicitly racist policies. And I think that as much as the, you know, the death of George Floyd and others has brought the conversation to the fore nationally, um, I think I first want to give credit to many of the planners who are already working and have been working for years who are well aware of equity and have been fighting for equity. I think that um, you know, to the extent that planning sometimes happens quietly or in the background, my perception is, you know, if I think about articles I've written over 10 years, equity almost always comes up, um, not even because it's a story about equity, just because 
you know, it's just a natural part of the planning process, I think for many people in California, not everyone, probably not enough people, but I think it's already very much in the planning DNA. I think the reason we don't necessarily see it on the ground is that these things take an incredibly long period of time. Plans take time, implementing them takes time, building them takes time, and seeing the social benefits takes even more time. Um, and when I say that, I think about one of the articles I wrote, which was the implementation of Senate Bill 1000, which passed several years ago, I wanna say five or six years ago, that mandates that general plans account for environmental justice, um, which is just one piece of the equity puzzle, but it's an important one, essentially making sure that disadvantaged populations aren't disproportionately affected by things like pollution and other environmental impacts. Um, th that law, you know, th that law has its critics, but it was mostly well received. The article was it's being implemented today, literally five or six years after it passed. So that's kind of an example of the lag time that we have in terms of achieving or striving for racial equity and planning. Um, you know, otherwise we have something more immediate such that um, Rex Richardson, um, the new uh, board chair of SCAG, who's a council member in Long Beach, on his very first day at SCAG, the MPO in Southern California, declared that SCAG will make racial justice a priority. Um, and he, you know, he just, he said it, he, he, you know, within the power of his position and, and they're off and running, um, presumably. Um, and he included in that things, you know, everything from broadband access in low income neighborhoods to housing. Um, he's a big housing advocate. Um, another, um, and then um, sort of one, one, one and, and of course, our probably biggest story on equity was our podcast, which is a roundtable of black planners in California, um, which we, we talk, gathered. We talked about what, who talked about not the impact of planning on black communities or, or the impact of racism on planning, but rather on what it's like to be a black planner in California. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly illuminating. I think that they were all seemed incredibly candid and really eager to share their experiences. I think both to, um, you know, inform their colleagues from other backgrounds and honor their own experiences. And I think that's the sort of thing that we may have considered or many journalists may have considered a bit touchy pre, you know, before George Floyd, but that with this national conversation, we realized, oh, this isn't just okay to have this conversation. We have to have this conversation. We have to give, you know, voice to these experiences. And we got a lot of great feedback on that. So I think, you know, that's, you know, th there's more to come hopefully, but I think that was an important um, new um, shift for CPDR. It does seem like environmental justice is gonna become more important in planning. I thought uh, unrelated to any story we've written, but, but I think very illuminating as the Biden administration comes in is the mm -hmm. odds on favorite for EPA administrator was Mary Nichols, the longtime chair of the California Air Resources Board who, who has been, who has done a, a a great deal to shape uh, uh, GHG emissions reduction and in, in that way, transportation and land use patterns in California. And yet uh, she did not make it to be the EPA administrator uh, in the Biden administration in large part because uh, she was viewed by many in California as being insufficiently responsive to environmental justice issues. So I think we're gonna see environmental justice in all its uh, forms uh, uh, become a more prominent issue practically practically everywhere, especially when planning is often 
blamed for facilitating gentrification, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, that, that comes up over and over again. And speaking of facilitating gentrification, um, the housing debate in California certainly did not die down this year, did it? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what, uh, how that emerged in the pages of CPDR this year. That's a great question. You know, I've, I've been thinking about, you know, absent the pandemic and absent racial discussions, what would we have filled CPDR's pages with? And I think we would have had no shortage <laughs> of news. Um, you know, the, the, the untold stories that, that are in the background when there's a mega story afoot, um, you know, are things we just don't know about. But I think we can assume that housing um, in many different varieties, both at the statewide policy level and at the local level of projects and plans um, would have been even more prominent. Um, as it was though, you know, there was plenty of, we, we ran plenty of housing articles. So I had a section in the top articles list about regular news. Um, you know, again, the stories aside from those two mega stories. Um, and I think, you know, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think every single one of them involved housing in some way. Um, so the, the most read news story was about the adoption of regional transportation plans slash sustainable community strategies in San Diego County and in the SCAG region. Um, these are the you know, big region-wide multi-year plans that presumably um, coordinate transportation investment with land use planning. And of course, housing is a big part of land use planning and has a big influence on transportation patterns. And the tension there is of course, the state wants regions to be planning for much more housing but the process for planning for housing is different from the process for planning for transportation. So even though these two major elements are intended to be aligned, um, what the article gets at is sort of the tension between the two different processes for deciding how much and where housing should be versus how people should get around. Um, and to me, that's just sort of a fundamental planning thing because like we can't tell the future and we don't know where the housing is going to go and we don't know what people are going to do. But um, that was certainly a big story, you know, covering, you know, 15 million or so Californians under these regional plans. Um, and, and, the, and, and there was fallout from that because uh, the, the, the RTPSCS in, uh, and, uh, connected to the regional housing needs assessment, particularly in the SCAG region, uh, loaded much more of the housing burden onto the coastal communities than in the past, largely, I think you reported because of a deal between Mayor Garcetti in LA and, and, and representatives from the Inland Empire. And that led to kind of a rebellion, especially in Orange County, where 50 of the 190 jurisdictions in the Skag region have appealed their, their housing target under the regional housing needs assessment. Mm-hmm. So that story about the appeals didn't make our top list, I think partly because it came out too recently and hasn't had that many hits yet. Um, but I would say that's going to be one of the big stories of 2021. Um, the appeals process will play out over the next month or so. The people I spoke to expected that the appeals will be denied. But when an appeal is denied, then you go to court. And there was definitely speculation that some of these cities are going to sue. They could sue SCAG. They could sue the state. They could somehow try to get SCAG to sue the state. Um, the, the upshot being is that 
the, the arena numbers for the SCAG region are really aggressive. And some cities are, are, are willing to do it and they're gonna zone for what they've been allocated for. And a lot of these Orange County cities just don't want to, or, or they say it's impossible. Some cities are saying, we simply can't fathom how to zone for you know, 5,000 extra units when our previous allocation was 1,000 units. Um, and you know, it's hard to tell whether that's nimbyism, they just don't want to, or whether you know, the, the planning tools just don't accommodate those numbers. But be that as it may, I think that we are gonna see these tensions and, and conflicts play out certainly through 2021. So we can look for more of those stories. And curiously, we see uh, uh, California continuing to have a housing crisis, continuing to have extremely high housing prices, which, by the way, have been driven up during um, during uh, COVID. The sale prices, uh, yeah. The sale prices have gone up. The rental prices have gone down. The sale prices have gone up. <clears throat> Even as California's population growth has stalled and reached, and recently uh, it was announced reached a historic low that between, I think it was between July of 2019 and July of 2020, uh, California, which has 40 million people, added only 20,000. Uh, fewer people than in at any time in recorded history. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and over the next year could potentially go down. Um, what are you hearing about? Uh, is there a pushback against uh, uh, aggressive housing targets when the population growth now, it, now is less than, than the housing production? Um, absolutely. So we haven't written an article, a, a news article on the housing flatlining. You've written um, your insight, which was, you know, incredibly interesting and like, you know, this major the, moment. The population flatlining. I mean, yeah. You mean the population flatlining. Right. Population flatlining. Um, in terms of planning, I think we, we are, I think opponents of development have, have sort of grabbed onto demographic trends a while ago. And I think, you know, absolutely, they're gonna grab onto this and say, we don't need new housing. The state's population is, is flat. You know, why, could, why would we possibly wanna build more housing because of that? So I think that um, obviously that's a little bit disingenuous because how the population's uneven in different places and some places are overpriced and some may be underpriced, but it's a great talking point if you don't like development to say the state's population has, you know, has cratered, um, and, and and yet and yet home prices in the Bay Area are the average home price in the Bay Area mm -hmm. is still a million bucks, which is what eleven or twelve times uh, average household income. And 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 as you said during the pandemic, why is it that during the pandemic home prices have gone up and rents have gone down? Do we know? Um, I don't think we didn't do an article on this, but but I think that you no, know, there's a lot of talk about. America having essentially two different economies right now. There are people who work paycheck to paycheck who are really hurting. And there are people who own stocks and real estates and the stock market is through the roof. And it looks like the real estate market is sort of paralleling the stock market. So that people of means um, for a lot of reasons do want to own real estate. They, you know, it could be people who were living in an apartment who saved up and now is their moment to get that house so that they get out of the, you know, the dense city or the city that's just sort of dead because things are closed. So I think, um, and, and I think people are looking to park their money, you know, with the stock market up, people do have cash if you're in that sort of upper tier um, or upper half maybe. Whereas um, 
you know, people of lower incomes are, are, are hurting. And I think that illustrates what's always been a pattern of housing in California. We've always had these debates versus market rate housing versus affordable housing and subsidized housing. And then there's the missing middle. And we've never been able to figure out that formula. And I think right now, um, you know, the need for subsidized housing and for missing middle housing is greater than ever while people of means are bidding up, you know, the, the, the quote unquote luxury or, or at least, you know, for sale housing. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, maybe one final point uh, about uh, to close out the year is <clears throat> between the housing crisis and uh, racial injustice and COVID, everybody almost forgot about the fact that this was the 50th anniversary of CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. Uh, which is, although it's not technically a planning law, maybe the most influential law affecting planning uh, in California. Mm -hmm. And so, and so we talked a lot this year about uh, how CEQA has changed over the years. And, and I think this is where it interrelates, interconnects with um, the housing debate because uh, another uh, housing topic we wrote a lot about this year was SB 35. That is the law that allows developers under certain circumstances to seek a ministerial approval of sometimes very big projects, um, uh, which is an end run around CEQA. And the, the most uh, prominent example of that this year was a five-story mixed-use uh, uh, residential and retail building in downtown Los Altos, which is basically a one-story or two-story environment. Um, uh, uh, and uh, Los Altos tried everything it could, I think, to, to stop this project and, and unfortunately, uh, in process terms, bungled it um, and was, in the end, forced to accommodate this, this building, this five-story building that they didn't want uh, because of SB 35, whereas uh, uh, if they had had CEQA to fall back on, uh, they might have been able to do something about it, at least to make it smaller or something like that. But, but I, one of the things I would observe, uh, Josh, is that unlike in the past, uh, cities are not afraid to seek exemptions from CEQA. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and developers are beginning to use SB 35 more often. And there's no question that Senator Scott Wiener from San Francisco and Senate leader Tony Atkins from San Diego and other housing production advocates in the legislature, uh, although they didn't get there this year, and that's another story we wrote about, um, are going to continue to try to expand um, ministerial uh, 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 ministerial options that end run CEQA to allow more housing to be built. And absolutely. And, you know, I think as you've alluded, developers will get savvy to this and learn how to use these new laws. Um, the other big change to CEQA that was implemented in 2020 was the shift from level of service to vehicle miles traveled as mandated by SB 743. And that was one of the five top news stories that, that we ran this year about um, OPR finally released the final guidelines for how cities can implement vehicle miles traveled. And that's expected to be a huge advantage to infill development um, because their transportation impacts are going to look a lot different and opponents will essentially no longer be able to sue projects um, based on what we call old old-fashioned LOS yeah. transportation impacts and you know, that not that under not under C not under CEQA anyway cities may still seek sure. uh, 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 but they can't use they can't the cities may still seek to mitigate those problems 
uh, uh, traffic congestion problems uh, um, from LOS, but they can't use CEQA to do it. Yeah. So, so the so the CEQA uh, hammer uh, is not there. But that's another example of the state taking a really long time to implement an important law. SB 743 was was passed and signed by the governor in 2013, mm -hmm. and and finally uh, this year OPR issued the final guidelines. The Office of Planning and Research issued the final guidelines. And and so uh, back to your point that that um, uh, planning is all about change, presumably, and yet uh, <laughs> changing planning practices themselves uh, seem to take a really long time in California, especially uh, it can especially it can take the state a really long time to implement an important law. What do you think are the issues, the stories that are not going to go away in 2021, Josh? Mm -hmm. Um, so we've already mentioned the, these housing debates between the cities and the, and the MPOs. I think that is not going to go away. I think some cities are chomping at the bit to file lawsuits and so forth. So we can we can look forward to some, um, you know, some pretty intense debates in that respect. Um, what we can and what we can expect there is that SCAG will deny the appeals mm -hmm. uh, from many of the cities seeking to get out from under the housing targets, and then. Many of those cities, and I'm guessing Orange County will be the center of this, will probably then sue. Right, right. So several cities with beach in their name um, will yeah. likely file a lawsuit. <laughs> um, I think, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think obviously racial justice will continue to be important. And I think your point about the Mary Nichols case, um, I think that trend of you know, debate within progressive communities and different wings is, you know, I think will influence planning in a lot of ways. Um, I think one that's near and dear to my heart, which I think we are seeing, I think one impact of the virus that is very apparent is the um, impact on retail. Um, I've written one or two blogs lately, one of which um, about one of my beloved outdoor stores, that was one of the top stories of the year. I wrote another, I called the Demolition Man pandemic, referring to the movie Demolition Man and the fact that all restaurants became Taco Bells in the future. And I think that <laughs> the, <laughs> the, you know, the pandemic is already killing local businesses. You know, I can walk around my neighborhood and there are empty storefronts. And I'm sure every Californian mm -hmm. can see the same, whether it's in a strip mall or a main street or whatnot. And, um, you know, why is that? Well, that's because businesses work, you know, have, a, have slim margins and they can go away very quickly, even though planning and vaccine development can take a long time. So we have a mismatch. It's not because people don't like stores. It's just because the, the economics are weird. And um, first of all, I think that's a shame for local culture. I think that diminishes the richness of cities for local stores to go away. It's also going to be a planning problem because empty storefronts are just bad. That's bad urbanism. And planners and, and real estate developer and landlord groups and all sorts of you know, and entrepreneurs are gonna have to figure out what to do with these vacant storefronts. And who knows, if the, vir if, if the virus goes away, maybe people just move in and landlords lower their rates and new business crop up, um, or maybe it's gonna require something more proactive. And the last point on that is that you know, planners have been promoting mixed use buildings for a very long time for very good reasons because they want to activate the street. But if there's an under demand for, you know, ground floor retail, what then happens to all of those nice buildings that planners have been advocating for? So I think that's, that's an ongoing um, story for sure. What do you well, think? I think there's a difference. Yeah, I think there's a difference between, uh, well, well, I think two things. One is, 
you will see more medical offices, personal care, yoga studios, which of course, some either don't activate the street or activate it very differently, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than continuously people going in and out of retail stores, uh, you see uh, people coming to a medical appointment and then leaving, or you see, uh, uh, you know, 30 people going into a yoga, yoga studio and coming out. But I, but here's my big prediction about this, which is that we're going to see a huge hollowing out of restaurants in the short run, mm -hmm. right? As you, as you indicated, uh, many restaurants are going to go out of business. But in the long run, once that hollowing out occurs, once everybody loses their money, once all the chefs lose their money and the investors lose their money and the landlords lose their money, I think restaurants and bars are going to come back stronger than mm -hmm. ever and take up some of those vacant retail spaces. Because I'm, I'm in agreement with Richard Florida that we're going to see the roaring 20s where people want to gather and, and, and restaurants and bars are the gathering place, I think, of the, of the 2020s. That's my big prediction. What's your big prediction about how uh, what cities will be look like and how different they will be coming out of COVID? Well, Bill, as you know me, I, I certainly hope you're right about restaurants and bars, and I do hope that the economics, you know, find an equilibrium that does allow for you know, a surge in city social life. Um, in terms of my predictions, um, I, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty intrigued by the work from home phenomenon. Um, you know, I've always worked from home, but I think we all have friends who, who used to work at very traditional offices. Um, that's separate, of course, from, you know, people who work in factories and stores and so forth that have to be on site. Um, but I think that, I think that's gonna be interesting. And it's gonna be interesting to see what happens to office space. It'll be interesting to see what happens to commuting patterns in the long term. Um, and what happens to you know productivity? People may find that this is fine in the short term, but it actually people need face-to-face -face contact. Um, so I think that's an impact on the agglomeration effects of cities. Um, I I think my biggest worry, um, and this we haven't covered, but I, but we we should and we will is on public transportation. Um, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, ridership is down. Transportation agencies' budgets have been decimated. Um, and in a lot of ways, public transportation was one of the big stories of the 2010s. You know, so many California cities built out light rail networks and retooled their bus networks. And all of that is, yeah, meant to get people around, but it's also a huge component of land use and urbanism. And, um, you know, LA in particular has had dramatic changes. And to see that undone because people are no longer riding the train for whatever, for various reasons, um, and because the train and the buses don't have funding, um, right at the moment when after five decades, people are finally starting to embrace public transportation as a real amenity and not just, you know, an annoyance or something for, you know, de transit dependent people. Um, to me, that'd be a huge shame and it would have huge impacts on development patterns. And, and, it, and, it, and it likely will, we're gonna, I think we're gonna see a hollowing out of, even with federal aid, which just came into play, it's probably about half of what's needed. Um, I think it's gonna take a long time. Uh, I, I fear a vicious uh, spiral downward where uh, uh, service gets cut because people aren't riding and then people aren't riding because service get cut, mm -hmm. gets cut, even, in, even for BART, which is the uh, heaviest used uh, public transit system in the state. Uh, 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 ridership is still down 70 or 80%. Um, so, so, I, so I think you're right. That's one of the, that's one of the big questions and the big stories. Well, that's it. 2020 was quite a year, as as you said in your roundup, a year like no other. Um, thanks, Josh, for joining us today. Uh, and CPDR will be there uh, 
covering 2021 stories, we couldn't have predicted a year ago if we'd had this. If we if we'd had this conversation a year ago, we probably couldn't. We might have predicted housing. We might have predicted CEQA. But mm-hmm. so many of the things that happened this year that affect cities and affect their planning, we couldn't have predicted. So who knows what's going to happen in 2021? And and so stay with us, readers and listeners, and we'll keep you posted. Uh, on expected and unexpected events in planning and development in California in 2021. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Bill Fulton, editor and publisher of California Planning and Development Report, along with Josh Stevens. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays.